0: championship of the world. Celtics versus the Lakers, the seventh deciding game in the NBA Finals and the great Larry Bird and the great Magic Johnson, the 1980 Winter Olympics, USA versus the Soviet Union in hockey. They called it the miracle on ice. Great showdowns. Tonight, the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks. You laugh. It's not just sports. Sensational trials that take place. We watch the prosecution and we watch the defendants and we watch them go back and forth on these, on these things that now because of media we see 24-7 kind of stuff and a big verdict comes in and we all gather around the TV to see which way it's going to go. Showdowns. Demonstrations. We see them all around the world against injustice or perceived injustice. Some of the more famous ones is when our own president a number of years ago stood on foreign soil and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the wall came down and we watched. We watched as unarmed protesters challenged tanks in Tiananmen Square on live television. We watch showdowns. They take place on the field, in the field, on courts and in courts. On the battlefield, sometimes they take place at work, sometimes in our families. Sometimes showdowns are part of the drama of life. The Bible knows showdowns. Moses versus Pharaoh, David versus Goliath. And maybe, maybe the most dramatic scene, at least in all of the Old Testament, is this showdown between Elijah, one prophet of God, and 450 prophets Of Baal on Mount Carmel, and the the outcome—the outcome—a great deal rides upon it. Elijah, the flare for the dramatic. This is the second week we've been following in the in the life of the prophet of Elijah. There, I told you last week there is there's something about the era in which Elijah lives. There's something about it that seems very similar to the era of history that we find ourselves living in. So once again, we're going to look at a whole chapter as we did last week. So we won't take the time to read the entire chapter, but you can follow along as we look at the story, 1 Kings chapter 18. We left Elijah last week in chapter 17. He was at Zarephath. There had been a terrible drought. You remember that God had sent him to a widow, a widow who was taking care of him, preparing meals for him, a jar of meal and a jug of oil that never ran out. But now God has called Elijah to go back and to confront Ahab, the evil king. On his way to see Ahab, Elijah runs into Obadiah. Obadiah happens to be the king's right-hand man. You can think that maybe that created uh, a little bit of tension. See, apparently Ahab and Obadiah were out looking for food, looking for grain. And that seems like a good thing to do when your land is in drought and your people are in need. But if you understand, Ahab wasn't looking for the people. Ahab wanted to make sure his horses were well fed. Obadiah, this man who works for Ahab, he reassures Elijah, Hey, I'm on your side. Don't worry. I know Queen Jezebel. She is wiping out the prophets of the God of Israel. She is committing, let's see, propheticide. That's a new word you can add to your dictionary somewhere. I asked for a service. It was a real word they never knew. I don't know. Tell me after if you don't think so. Anyway, propheticide. But Obadiah says, I have saved a hundred of God's prophets. So I don't want you to worry. I work for the king, but I worship the God of Israel. So the story goes on for a little bit, and Ahab and Elijah meet. And I, I love the way that King Ahab greets Elijah. He says, is that you? You troubler of Israel. And Elijah responds, Ahab, you are the one who is the troubler. You are the one who who is uh, worshiping Baal and leading people in that. But, But there is a sense in which the king got it right. Elijah is a troubler of Israel. But that was his job. That was his calling. And here's the thing. Being troubled is exactly sometimes what people need to hear said the preacher who likes to meddle once in a while. Apparently, the decisions and the behavior of Ahab and Jezebel, they had not troubled their own people enough yet. Under this administration, Baal worship had grown by leaps and bounds in Israel. The prophets of God were actually now being murdered. Ahab's rule was marked by injustice. But people continued to stand by. Sometimes trouble is exactly what we need. Ahab is seen by the writer of the kings as the worst ruler of all time. But the people don't seem to take any action. What Israel needed was for somebody to come in and somebody to shake them up and somebody to turn them upside down and and to give a fighting chance for truth and justice. and, And Elijah, this is his calling that God has led him to. He confronts the people. He confronts them about their wishy-washiness for their whole inability to choose between the God of Israel and, and Baal. He says, attention all you fence straddlers. How long? How long will you you be so indecisive about this absolutely critical choice of choosing the God of Israel to be your God? How long will you worship and treat God so casually like you're trying to decide between paper and plastic at the grocery store? How long do you sit by while a nation turns to Baal and leaves behind the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and goes to hell in a handbasket? Now, if you're following along, I might have taken some liberty with those words. A little, But in modern, in modern words, that's exactly what Elijah saying. He lays it on. He lays them on, and yet the people don't respond. It's like they just clear their throats and they look at their feet and they don't make a decision. But you and I understand when you fail to act, when you fail to make a decision, you are making a decision. And so Elijah decides he's going to go for broke. If words won't convince him... Maybe an old fashioned Mono mano duel. That might do it. That might wake them up. Except this isn't a mono mano This is one versus four hundred and fifty. This is one guy, the prophet Elijah, versus four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal. It is a showdown, and it appears that the odds are stacked against Elijah. This is a testosterone filled story. I mean, before the World Wrestling Federation, before Monster Trucks, before the NFL on Sunday, this is about as good as it gets. This is a wild and woolly story of my God is bigger than your God kind of a challenge. It has taunts and drama and competition and fire from the sky and violence on a massive scale. People say the Bible is boring. Are you kidding? Read it. Elijah proposes this contest. Elijah will build an altar to the God of Israel. The 450 prophets of Baal will build an altar to Baal. They will put a sacrifice on the altar. You remember that's why you built the altar, is you put a sacrifice on, you lit the altar, you gave the sacrifice. But here's the deal. They'll do both. One person will build one. 450 will build the other. Whoever's lights first wins. Whoever's lights first, that is the God of gods. Is it Baal or is it the God of Israel? The people love the idea and the competition is on. The prophets of Baal go first. Everything is stacked up against Elijah. If the prophets of Baal can somehow conjure up fire, then Elijah, it's over before it even starts for him. So the Baal prophets, 450 of them, they began to do their thing. Hundreds of them dancing and crying out, crying out to to, to, to Baal hour after hour dancing around and crying, and, and they, they even began to cut themselves, which was a custom to show their sincerity, hour after hour of what's taking place. And what's Elijah doing as he watches all of this? He's trash-talking them. He's making fun of them. He's laughing at them. He's saying, and, and I'll tell you what, our, our English version of Scripture, it cleans it up a little bit. It makes it a little, a little easier um, on the English reader. Is Baal too busy, Elijah says? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's wandered off. In the Hebrew, it's more like, is Baal in the bathroom? But I've got to tell you, Elijah in the original language doesn't say it so politely. For all of the efforts of Baal, these hours, this screaming, this cutting, this yelling, all the things that are taking place, nothing happens. They give up. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. Elijah knows a thing or two about presentation. Here's this altar that needs to, st- to start on fire. Elijah doesn't go. He doesn't ask God first. He goes and gets the buckets of water. Elijah begins to put water. Remember, we've got we to gotta start this thing on fire. Elijah starts just pouring the water on the altar, on the sacrifice, on the rocks. They, they built a trench around the altar, poured so much water on the altar, the trench is now a moat. And he pours this on and on and on. And the crowd is waiting. The crowd is pumped. The stage is set. And Elijah calls on God. And he says, O Lord, I alone am left. I am your prophet. And there are 450 prophets of Baal here. Now, we know that Elijah wasn't totally alone. Obadiah already told us he saved 100 of God's prophets. But Elijah's the only one who's there. Or at least he's the only one who's spoken up. At the odds... Are against him. And Elijah calls on God. And there is no pleading necessary. There is no ranting necessary. There is no cutting necessary. There is instant results. Boom. The fire starts. The fire comes from heaven. It not just cooks the sacrifice. It consumes it. it the fire was so strong. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumed the altar. It consumed the rocks that were around the altar. The dirt around the altar. And it dried up the moat. See, I think God was having as much fun as Elijah was in this moment. There could not have been a more decisive victory. There was no doubt who had won. Who was the real God? I wish we had time to talk more about it. It's another part of the story, but part of the story is the prophets of Baal are, are slaughtered, which is a whole story in itself that maybe we'll talk about later. You imagine this scene. Imagine what a boost it was to these beleaguered worshippers of the God of Israel. Imagine how it seemed or they thought it would change their fortune overnight. We all, we all could use that kind of boost. We all need those big events, those those huge victories to give us hope and, and to give us energy. But if that's all there is to our faith, if all there is to our faith are those big, glorious moments when God shows up in mighty ways, it will leave us Disappointed. For you think that after such a grand thing that would take place, that such, a, such an amazing showdown that takes place, you would think that the people would turn to God in mass. But they didn't. The worship of gods alongside of the God of Israel, or instead of the God of Israel, continued, and it. it would be a couple of generations before Israel would be, by and large, monotheistic. Our faith. Her faith has to be built more on pyro, more than, than pyrotechnics and more than turning to God in times of personal crisis. We, we've been thinking a lot through the media this week of September 11th. Just a couple weeks ago, my son Lake was there at Ground Zero at the memorial. I remember well September 11th, and I remember, um, I remember the, the talk all around the country, at least in the, in the, in the groups that I hang with, Um, wondering would would this be a moment, would this be a place would this be a time in which people might begin to think about getting their house in order in their relationship with God and sure enough we saw attendance in church across our nation go up for a couple of weeks and when that blip was over it returned back to where it had been moments of crisis can turn us towards God I don't want to downplay that at all. It's absolutely true. Often, God uses the broken moments, those moments in our life where there is a crisis or something that takes place where we are more open to hearing His voice. God can use those moments. And God uses moments of jubilation, those mountaintop moments, like what took place on Mount Carmel. He can infuse us with energy and passion and ignite our faith. But we need to remember that faith is as much about what happens in the valleys as in times of drought and in times of hardship as it is in times of victory. It's a powerful story. I I honestly don't know why Hollywood hasn't made a movie out of it. I mean, you know, they did the Ten Commandments. That's a pretty big movie. I, I mean, this is a big deal. You've got your good and your bad. You've got a hero. You've got a decisive victory. We don't get a lot of big decisive victories in real life. It seems like it would make a great story. It is a great story. But for us in 2013 in Bonner County, Idaho, it's got to be more than a story. We've got to think about how does it apply in our life? How does it apply to how we live and, and the calling of God in our own lives? And I actually think it applies in a whole bunch of ways. And I think we could talk about it in a whole bunch of ways that we don't have time for this morning. So to boil it down into an essential, I think it raises a question for us. I think it raises a challenge Of which altar do we claim for ourselves? At whose altar will we choose to worship? It kind of sounds like a dumb question at first because I I don't really think, at least knowingly, that I've ever met anyone who is a Baal worshiper. But if we look at it in another way, there are plenty of gods at whose altars we make a sacrifice. Maybe the slaughter of the prophets of Baal bothers us not because of the carnage and the bloodiness of it, but because they're in a very real sense. We are all Baal worshipers. Now by that I don't mean that we worship the ancient Middle Eastern God of rain and fertility. I mean that, that we all can have mixed allegiances. And sometimes what we really worship, sometimes what we, what we choose to really value the most is something other than the living God. What we seek after and sometimes the way, the way we seek after it is not always in keeping with the way of Jesus. These gods have all kinds of names. There's a whole mass of them. There's the God of self-sufficiency. The, the God who, who says to us, you can do it on your own. You don't need him. You don't need her. You don't need God. You don't need anything else. And we close ourselves off to relationships of the community with each other and with the God who created us. The gods we worship have names like possessions. Now, let me just say, I like possessions. I like possessions. I think there's nothing wrong with possessions. But we can end up living for those sort of things, giving them a place in the priorities of our life that they don't deserve. Or we can hang on so tightly to that which God has given us in the first place, we're afraid to share it with anybody and let the stewardship of God just be the cycle of giving in our life. We worship at the God of relationships, the altar of relationships. I w- wouldn't be so down if my friend was more responsive to my needs. If my wife would do this, life would be better. If my husband would do this, if my children treated me better, if my parents weren't so annoying, if I found Miss Wright or Mr. Wright, if my co-workers weren't so difficult, it would be good. And we go on and on and on. And we pass on the impossible to someone else. That somehow they are responsible for how we feel. That somehow by their action affects our life and in ways we've given them the power we give to a god maybe it's another name for baal there are any number of gods out there we could list them off image control money comfort you and i could continue to make a list there is a sense in which we are all at times polytheists worshipers of multiple gods so maybe maybe the point of the story in fact i i know the point of the story is not to go out and slaughter the infidel who worship other gods. Because those infidels might just be you and me. That may describe us in some ways and at some points of our life. Maybe the point is this, that we daily, consciously, need to decide at what altar we're going to stand at. We daily, consciously need to decide that we will stand with Elijah at the altar of Yahweh. No matter how unlikely the situation may be, no matter how wet the wood is, no matter how big the odds are against us, God's fire can still blaze in our lives when we call on Him. But the thing is, too often we have been afraid or unable to leave some of the altars behind. Last week when we left, I encouraged you to ponder two questions to make them part of a a discussion in your life or part of the daily reflections of your life. If you're on our email list, I I sent you an email to to remind you of these two questions. And, and, And here they are. The first one, what are you relying on more than God? And second, what could God do through your life if you lived like everything was His? Those are good questions. I hope you spent some time with them this week. And they are questions. They aren't questions that you know you just get assigned for a week and you go, okay, I took care of that one. These could be questions that could be part of a daily, part of the daily check again for God's call in your life. And maybe you'll do like my wife. My wife did. She hung it on the mirror in our bathroom. Um, I don't know if she hung it for me or for her, but we're both using it. Good questions to ask yourself every day. I want to encourage you to take those questions home again. Make it part of your make it part of your, your reflection time, your devotional life. But can I add a third question for you this week? The third question. What altar will you stand by? See, for most of us, the big showdown, the big showdown isn't a once in a lifetime winner take all pyrotechnic event. For most of us the showdown is a daily choice. A daily choice on whether to follow Jesus or not. A daily choice to worship the God of love and grace and peace and justice. And to daily choose to leave the gods of those other altars behind. See, I don't think that God acts fully while we stand at another altar. See, I think this is often what we do. We we keep the, the God altar in mind over there. We, 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 we don't take our eyes off of it, when we know it's there. And if God does something and shows up, then we'll go over. If, God, if the fire comes over there, we'll, we'll get on board. We kind of hang out where we are until we think God's going to show up, and then we go, we go over. Or, or, or perhaps even we're at a place in our life where we say, you know, I've never seen that, that thing light up. I'm not, I don't need it. I'm not going over there until it does. I don't think that's how God works. Is God working all the time? Yes. But I tell you, and there are people who would t- say that they've experienced that in this room, I don't think you fully, you fully understand or can understand the power of God at work in your life that he wants to give you until you walk away from the altar you're at and go over to the wet altar and say, I will step out in faith. And I don't know how bad the odds are and I don't know how wet the altar is, but I will step out in faith this is the altar I place my life in. See, so much of us just say, well, I don't need that. God, I've never seen it, never seen it light out. I don't think that's how God works. He calls you to walk away from what you are. And I don't think you fully get to experience the power of God in your life until you stand there and say, okay, God, it's just me against 450 or a million or whatever it is. And I need you. And God doesn't always do it the same way. But he is always faithful in what he does. And I think he waits for us to step out on faith. Let me ask you again. What, what are you relying on in your life more than you're relying on him? What could God do with your life? What could he do with your life for the rest of the days you have? And they are numbered, whatever they are. What could he do if you acted like everything you have is his? And today and this week and in the days to come, which altar will you choose to stand by?